You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. CISA, the FBI, the ACSC, and the NCSC issue a joint advisory warning of an Iranian cyber campaign, a Belarusian connection to Ghostwriter, Candiru tools reported in watering holes, side copies interest in Afghanistan, Ramp shows an interest in attracting Chinese operators, Josh Ray from Accenture Security digs into the Conti playbook leak, our guest is Matt Keeley from Bishop Fox on fuzzing, and Pom Pom Porum wants to sell you leaked data from Robinhood. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency this morning issued a joint advisory with the FBI, the Australian Cybersecurity Center, and the U.K.'s National Cybersecurity Center that warns of Iranian-sponsored exploitation of vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange and Fortinet. The Fortinet vulnerabilities, which include 40 OS vulnerabilities listed as CVE 2018-13379, CVE 2020-12812 and CVE 2019-5591 have been under active exploitation since March. The threat group has been working against a flaw in Microsoft Exchange Proxy Shell, which is CVE 2021-34473, since last month. The advisory says, quote, The Iranian government-sponsored APT actors are actively targeting a broad range of victims across multiple U.S. critical infrastructure sectors, including the transportation sector and the healthcare and public health sector, as well as Australian organizations. FBI, CISA, ACSC, and NCSC assess the actors are focusing on exploiting known vulnerabilities rather than targeting specific sectors. These Iranian government-sponsored APT actors can leverage this access for follow-on operations such as data exfiltration or encryption, ransomware, and extortion. End quote. The advisory includes advice on detection and mitigation. The most important mitigation is to patch vulnerable systems, since all of the exploits take advantage of known and fixed flaws in the susceptible software. Mandiant finds a connection between the Ghostwriter campaign, generally regarded as a Russian operation, to Belarus. The company doesn't rule out an additional Russian connection to the threat actor it tracks as UNC-1151, but it thinks that Ghostwriter's targeting, its absence of any obvious criminal payoff, 
and the messaging of its disinformation argue for Belarus. It's possible that this represents a distinction without much of a difference, given the close alignment of Moscow and Minsk, much closer than that between Russia and any other former Soviet republic in the near abroad. Kandiru, the Israeli company recently subjected to U.S. sanctions alongside the better-known NSO group, has been tracked to a widespread surveillance campaign targeting mostly Middle Eastern organizations. Researchers such as the Bratislava-based security firm ESET have found the company's tools in watering holes designed to attract Iranian and other subjects. Many of those watering holes were established in compromised news sites. Those sites included the London-based Middle East Eye, Yemeni media outlets including Al-Masira, linked to the Houthi rebels fighting the Saudis, websites belonging to Iran's foreign ministry, to Yemen's finance and interior ministries, to Syria's electricity ministry, and to internet service providers in Syria and Yemen. Other compromised sites included some belonging to Piaggio Aerospace, an Italian aerospace company, to Hezbollah, and to the Saudi Reality, which is a media outlet operated by Saudi dissidents. ESET thinks it probable that the Kandiru malware was delivered to users in a browser exploit. Kandiru has kept a much lower profile than the NSO group, but according to Computing, to share some investors with the better-known Israeli company. Like NSO group, Kandiru sells its tools to governments. Unlike NSO group, whose Pegasus software is designed for use against phones, Kandiru's software principally affects desktop computers. Reuters reports that Facebook, now formerly known since its rebranding as Meta, tracked a Pakistan-based group, Sidecopy, that sought to bring Afghans connected to the former government under surveillance as that government collapsed during the summer's Taliban takeover. Facebook's head of cyber espionage investigations, Mike Dvilyansky, told Reuters, quote, It's always difficult for us to speculate as to the end goal of the threat actor. We don't know exactly who was compromised or what the end result of that was, end quote. In any case, Facebook ejected side copy accounts from its platform in August and published a report on the group's activity yesterday. Side copy, which is believed to be operated by or on behalf of the Pakistan government, has been mostly associated with espionage operations against Indian targets. Security firm Flashpoint has observed that the Ramp ransomware forum is back, but that it includes a lot of Chinese-speaking participants. It's not clear what they're up to. Does it represent a serious criminal outreach? Maybe even a serious privateering outreach to Chinese actors? Or is it misdirection of the kind Flashpoint discerned earlier this month in Groove, apparently intended to simply darken counsel? Flashpoint's conclusion acknowledges the difficulty of sorting out the motivations. Quote, While it is possible that Russian-speaking ransomware operators may be seeking alliances outside of Russia, cooperative cybersecurity talks with the U.S. are currently underway, it remains unclear whether ramp efforts to woo Chinese-speaking threat actors are in fact legitimate or simply a smokescreen. In late October 2021, the Groove ransomware gang called on other ransomware operators to jointly attack U.S. entities. Once this generated media attention, the operator of Groove's public blog claimed that it was a media hack. It's certainly possible that Ramp's overture to Chinese-speaking threat actors is part of a similar strategy. End quote. 
And finally, not content with goofing on the FBI and other grown-ups like security researcher Vinnie Troya, hacker Pom Pom Purin is offering the low-grade content of the Robinhood stock trading platform for sale, Security Week reports. The big five million figure quoted is for the most part simply user emails. About 310 had more data stolen, but even theirs fell short of fulls, including, as they did, name, date of birth, and zip code. It's not clear whether Pom Pom Purin has the goods, inconclusive, Security Week sources say, nor is it clear how valuable those goods would be in any case. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The use of fuzzing by security researchers and software developers is growing as teams find innovative ways to apply the technique. I checked in with Matt Keeley, security analyst at Bishop Fox, to get a better understanding of what exactly fuzzing is and how best to use it. In essence, fuzzing is a technique that was originally developed by security researchers, but now is starting to get more into the hands on the software development side. But what it allows you to do is to perform black box analysis on a given program. And some of these programs can be things like binaries, network protocols, web applications, uh, any of that jazz. And so where does the, the fuzz and fuzzing come from? So the fuzz and fuzzing is more of the input that you're sending to the program. So what the fuzzer will do is it will take and generate a lot of arbitrary inputs and then sort of throw things at the wall or at the program until something sticks. So the goal of fuzzing is to try to make the program act in a a way that the program normally wouldn't act in. 
And it does that by fuzzing. Uh, the fuzz is the arbitrary inputs that it's sending to the fuzzer. Um, and then the fuzzer will send it to the programmer, to the application. So while it's doing its thing in an automated way, it's, it's logging the results. And then if something interesting happens, that gets reported back? There's two types of fuzzers. There's dumb fuzzers and there's smart fuzzers. And so the dumb fuzzers don't necessarily know what the output of the program is. So if it sends something to the program, it doesn't necessarily know if the program is crashed or not, um, which is why it's called a dumb fuzzer. But a smart fuzzer, essentially, it can record the data that's sent and it can record the output that, or it essentially records events that happen on the server side of things as well. And then it uses that data to create new test cases. You know, just as an aside, I think I'm going to start using that as an insult and a compliment. You know, that guy is one dumb fuzzer. Oh, boy, that is, what, that is a smart guy. Is, boy, talk about a smart fuzzer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so where do we find ourselves today in terms of the, the state of the art and, and how people are applying this in the security realm? So in the security realm, where I see it the most is it's more being developed now into the um, the development pipeline. So DevOps is using this to sort of do a fuzz as you commit to the GitHub repos. So every time you commit to your GitHub repo, uh, the fuzzer that's developed with the harness, uh, essentially what the harness does is uh, gives you a little more flexibility and allows you to specify exactly what you want to fuzz. But it's being integrated there. So every time you commit code to your database, um, they're running the fuzzers in that aspect. Something pretty recent and new that's come out as well is the DOE is actually doing fuzzing, but for simulations. DOE is in Department of Energy. So they're fuzzing their critical infrastructure to see essentially if we give you a scenario. So a power line goes down, a squirrel eats a cable, there's an earthquake in California. Given that scenario, uh, they fuzz their critical infrastructure with the scenarios in mind. And then uh, using a simulated process, essentially, they see how that reacts after the fuzzer sent the uh, input in. Are there any potential pitfalls here? Any, any shortcomings when it comes to implementing these sorts of things? Um, it's not a, you know, it, it doesn't always find everything. And that's sort of the state of security in itself. It tends to throw things at the wall, but one of the big downfalls with fuzzing is the code coverage that it can get. So it doesn't necessarily get full code coverage of the application, meaning you can't sometimes hit some of the really intricate functions inside of a program just because of the way that the fuzzer is set up. That's kind of where harnesses come in, though. So harnesses take away that problem uh, in some aspect, but it does require human intervention. I see. So does the harness sort of um, allow you to uh, specifically target what you want the fuzzing to to be turned loose on? Yeah, absolutely. It sort of bridges the gap uh, between how the fuzzer expects that input to occur and how it actually occurs. So in your experience, you know, the people who are successful at implementing this, are, are there any common threads there, things that uh, the successful people are doing? Um, not particularly. I think the, the biggest success is people actually implementing fuzzing into their pipelines, uh, whereas running the fuzzer, you know, once in a blue moon or once a year type deal doesn't work as well as you think it would. But if you're continuously running it on every commit, on every push, you tend to find a lot better results in that aspect. That's Matt Keeley from Bishop Fox. 
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Josh Ray. He is Managing Director and Global Cyber Defense Lead at Accenture Security. Josh, always great to have you back on the show. Um, you know, I really wanted to touch base with you today about uh, the Conti Ransomware Group. And uh, recently they had a little, uh, well, they had a little leak, didn't they? Yeah, they did, Dave. And, and uh, thanks for having me back on the show. This is a really interesting topic that I think will, will help the, the listenership better understand um, ransomware operations. As many of the folks know, you know, Conti's been around since about June of, of 2020. Uh, and in this particular instance, you know, our CTI analysts, you know, observed that a member of the group, just to show kind of the displeasure, essentially, of how the Conti administrators reward their affiliates, again, an alleged member, leaked manuals and, and procedures that the, the ransomware gang shares with the new joiners of, of their group. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's kind of neat because this this leak actually offered some some rare insight into the current methodologies that the, the group uh, employs. And our team did a complete breakdown of this playbook and, and really solidified a lot of our thoughts around the complexity of the criminal ecosystem. But now defenders can use this playbook to, to really support detection and tracking of future ransomware operations. So what were some of the things that the leak revealed? Yeah, now, keep in mind that this is a criminal organization. Uh, <laughs> right, no I, honor among thieves. Yeah, but, but it's interesting to, to, to draw some, some parallels between normal um, security practitioners, right? So the, the leak really helped uh, shed light on not only the, the operations uh, and the organized structure that a new process, so a new hire essentially goes through in demonstrating their skill and capabilities and one of the fascinating things to me was that much like, you know, white hat security professionals, the Conti playbook highlights that really there's this huge importance on continuous learning and sharing, especially around like cybersecurity certification material of the members, which I thought was, you know, fascinating. Like, I mean, it's continuous learning is important for the good guys and the bad guys, right? Hmm. And this in the playbook really also confirms how operators of really any technical skill set shift from this notion of malware authoring to really quickly into the acquisition of more aggressive and impactful capabilities that are really focused on compromising the internal and external uh, network infrastructure, really with the ultimate objective to quickly exfiltrate uh, data. It's fascinating to me how we seem to see a, a continued professionalization of this and, and even, you know, specialization that you know, different folks are, are taking on different parts of these tasks. Yeah, it's, it's exactly true. And, and I think that just speaks, you know, to the, to the profession at large, right? And as you have folks that are transitioning out of 
you know, uh, intelligence community and defense organizations that, you know, might be drawn into criminal gangs. Um, you're, we're probably going to continue to see this. But maybe one of the biggest takeaways, you know, for me was was first that this is really making tracking and attribution a lot more difficult for folks that are there, especially folks that are sp- focused on cybercrime research, because there's just a tremendous amount of uh, partnership and collaboration now. Uh, and as you mentioned, specialization uh, hmm. across these groups. And it's almost like tracking different business entities rather than, you know, threat groups. But I will say a really positive thing, and, and this is one thing I want to make sure that kind of we foot stomp here, is that, you know, you can adapt this playbook to, to really kind of your hunt operations, right? To really specifically look for pre-ransomware TTPs and get a notion of the types of attacks and tactics that are that are uh, revealed in this playbook, uh, because they're absolutely almost identical to other notable big game ransomware uh, hunting operations that we've seen. Yeah, no, it's it's a fascinating look in, inside the organization. Uh, Josh Ray, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Really appreciate it. CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Oh,